Scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew 5, verses 11 through 16. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and, uh, excuse me, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives full light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good morning. Last week we uh, began a small sermon series related to our 2022 theme, church-wide theme, which is the theme of outreach or mission. You can see it on the banners around the building, calling it Sent, Loving the World as God Has Loved Us. And this little sermon series that we uh, launched uh, last week is titled The Practice of Preaching, I'm sorry, The Preaching of Practice and Presence. The Preaching of Practice and Presence. It takes its cues from Matthew chapter 5, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to his disciples as salt of the earth and light of the world. He says, you, actually it's in the plural, you guys, y'all, ye are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Remember that in John 1.14, the incarnation's purpose was to show the glory of God. So we have the same purpose as Jesus. The, he, we, in our good works, are trying to accomplish the same things he did by dwelling among us and through that allowing the world to behold divine glory. So it's a big charge. Um, this, I, and, and it's pretty profound to think about this merely being present in the world. You know, as salt is put into the food or light is placed in a dark room. And by practicing before the watching eyes of the world these good works that are associated with life in Christ's kingdom, we are in effect preaching. And that's why we're calling this series Preaching by Presence and by Practice. The sermons that we preach every day just by being around people and living for our King. So I want to kind of explore that a little more today and, and, and basically ask this question, are we are we actually present um, with the people who are still in darkness, who don't know our King? In our daily lives, do we indeed practice the behaviors? Does our conduct look like salt? Does it befit the light of the world? Does it reflect God's glory? I want you to notice as we begin the ominous warning that we have in this text. I think kind of the burden of this text is actually to to point to the disciples, you need to make sure you're doing this. There's some, um, some circumspection you know, required in, in, in your walk. He says, if salt has lost its taste, or an uh, other way of translating that would be its saltness, like the qualities of salt, ability to preserve and, and act, you know, do the things that salt does, how can that be restored? I mean, you, you're the ones that have been given these qualities. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's a pretty ominous warning. 
And if we don't truly exhibit the traits of salt, the good works associated with light, he says we're really good for nothing except to be thrown out. So this calls for some serious introspection. And that's really what our second lesson is about today. The connection between reaching out and looking in. Okay? We can talk about mission and being outwardly oriented all day long, but there is a piece of this inward perspective that can never be lost. That I would argue, I think this text would bear me out, is inextricably connected to mission. If we're lights just by being in the darkness, if we're salt merely by being in the food of this world, of this earth, respectively, then it kind of becomes a matter of, are we really those kinds of people? And we're not going to know that if we're not taking a hard look at ourselves continually. That's part of it. There's a missional aspect to, you know, being attentive to the kind of character and conduct um, that we uh, have and are. I would suggest that one of the most spiritually profound habits a Christ follower can have is introspection. Uh, the wisdom literature talks a lot about this. The ability to look inside oneself and conquer oneself, which is greater than conquering a city. Right? I wonder if Vladimir Putin thinks much about that. The world conquerors, you know, uh, they want to go down in history. They, do they think about conquering their own selves? You know, all of us have a struggle with self-control, with self-discipline. And that begins by look, the willingness to look inside ourselves, introspection. So we need continually to ask ourselves, as a church and as individual Christians, has our salt lost its taste? Has it lost its saltness? If our conduct is truly light, or is it not really that different from the darkness? And without this introspection, how are we going to be people who are penitent? How can we change? become more like light and more like salt we're not even considering what we are and how we are being in the world i want to share a quote with you from christopher j h wright's book the mission of god's people where he brings this point home in a really effective way he says this the people whom god has called into partnership with himself and his great redemptive mission need to take a look at themselves hmm? he's saying he's calling us out here the first recorded command of Jesus, not go, but repent. Just chronologically, you look, the first thing he says when he comes on the scene in the Gospels is repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The last thing he says is go into all the world. So it must be for the church. We cannot go for admission to the world without attending to ourselves. It suggests that we have to wait until before we engage in mission. It means that part of missional responsibility has to include facing up to the failings and shortcomings of the church itself precisely because they are such a damning hindrance to god's mission through us there can be no effective mission that does not include such repentance as a constant state of mind and heart repentance isn't something you do in five one of five steps and you stop and you're done with it repentance is something that begins as you're coming to christ but it's a, it's a state of mind, it's a state of heart, it's something that's continuous, right? And I want, to, I want to zero in on this statement. The first command of Jesus was not go, but repent. We will not function as the kind of beacon that this world, which is tossed on the waves of darkness and chaos, 
needs if we don't have this constant state of mind and heart, which looks inward and seeks to be more like the light and salt that Jesus calls us to. The lighthouse won't be distinguishable from the surrounding darkness. It'll just look like the rocky coast. It'll look like the waves. The light needs to think about whether it's really light. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This disposition of ongoing repentance that depends upon a posture of introspection, continually taking an honest look inside ourselves. Let's begin by asking this. Why is such self-reflection so difficult? Why is it so hard? Why do we so resist self-criticism? And before we address that, or as we address that in this sermon, I want to make this basic observation about the text in Matthew 5. So this is the text that, that uh, Stephen read a minute ago from the Sermon on the Mount. From, it's right after the Beatitudes. He says, you're the salt of the earth and the, and the light of the world. By your good works, you're going to reflect God's glory to the dark world that needs it so. All right? But I, I want to make this observation. There are actually three parties in this section of Jesus' sermon, not just two. It's not just Christ talking to the disciples. We do read about Christ. He's the one talking, right? So that's one of the parties involved in this text. But there's also the disciples who are hearing this. Sermon on the Mount is being actually spoken to his disciples. I'm sure there were onlookers as well. But there's a third party. If we look at the, 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 the verses immediately prior to this, so it's the same context. The statement about being light and being salt is said in this context. Blessed are you, disciples, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What world? What earth? The one that's full of persecutors. There's no new heading here. He didn't, you know, this isn't from a different part of the Bible. This is the same oration. So when we think about whether we are salt and whether we are light, as we do this process of introspection on a day-in, day-out basis, we're doing it in the context of a world and an earth that is dark, that isn't light, that isn't salt. And it's not just inert. It actually is actively accusing us and slandering us and hating us and persecuting us sometimes. Why? Because we're different. That's the whole context. So we're not thinking about introspection, and I'm not asking you to think about with me introspection in some sort of vacuum, just like Jesus wasn't addressing it in a vacuum. He's not calling us to be salt and light merely as some kind of doctrinal affirmation, right? It's not some abstract mental commitment that we make absent any concrete real-world context. No, the verses immediately tell us immediately prior, tell us that he's talking about people in the world who malign us, persecute us, disparage us. And so the crucible, where our attitude toward introspection is often revealed, and maybe even forged, is this opposition of the world around us to the people of God. All right? So what we want to do this morning, as we try to do some uh, self-reflection and maybe launch a commitment in our own hearts to a more self-reflective, introspective kind of way of being, 
We want to think about how we relate to those who don't yet know Jesus. You know, Scripture calls Jesus the light of the world. He's the light. We're little lights reflecting his light. But some people don't know. Most people don't know the light of the world. They're still in darkness. And so let's think about ourselves, whether we're light, whether we're salt, in light of um, how we relate to those in darkness. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to do this morning. Reaching out by looking in. But doing so by thinking about how we relate to people around us who are still in darkness. All right. One of the possibilities is to just get out of Dodge. world's an awful place. Every generation I've ever read about thinks it's the worst generation that ever lived. And I want to tell you something. As a historian, I don't know. I don't, there's a lot of things I don't know. I did spend a lot of time nerding up, time nerding up on religious history, especially in America. Like 10 years, way too long. Actually told, this is it, you got one more year, you're out. No kidding. Like, I set a record for the slowest student in Chapel Hill history. People have been saying, especially politicians and preachers, from 1620, when the Puritans landed, um, it's called the narrative of declension. There's actually a historical name for the thesis that, oh, we're, we're declining. We got, we're declining. And it, and it hasn't gone like that. From when? When was the pinnacle? First century? So the church at Corinth? How about that one? I mean, they're dividing and arguing and fighting and living immorality, immoral, immorally like pagans from day one. We talk about restoring the New Testament church. Well, I hope not Corinth. Was there ever a glory time? These are the good old days. They're not really very good. Who sang that? Carol King? I can't remember. Um, but you, you could argue that they never were. You know, um, God comes to Abraham after all and says, I'm going to make your name great. People at Babel were trying that. I'm going to make your name great. You're not going to make a name for yourselves. I'm going to do it. And he's talking to Abraham. And if you read the rest of Genesis, Abraham isn't a stellar character for a long time. God's the stellar character in Genesis and the Bible. Praise him. He and, and we're grateful to him that he cares enough about us to bring us along with him. But what I'm talking about here is this idea, well, let's just withdraw. The world is so bad, we'll just depart from it. We'll leave the dark, people still in darkness behind, and we'll just disengage. That's the answer. And you know one of the sects in Jesus' day? We had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots, or the Canaanians, as they're sometimes called. But there was another one, a fourth sect, called the Qumran community, we, the scholars call them now, because they lived in this area called Qumran, which is on the northwestern coast of the Dead Sea. It was a rocky, you know, sort of cave-pocked cliff, and they, they lived in there. Um, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They were documents that they had, you know, re, um, rewritten... Um, um, parts of uh, the Old Testament and their own commentary. And basically their answer was <clears throat> not to be freedom fighters like the zealots who would, you know, carry daggers of so-called Sicarii and stab Roman leaders or Jewish uh, uh, turncoats in, in, in public places or the Pharisees who were kind of culture warriors or the Sadducees who sort of tried to, I'm stereotyping here, these are cliches, but some truth in them. You know, let's, let's uh, go along to get along. Um, the Essenes who went to this Qumran area basically said, we got to leave physically. It's too dark. Guess what they called themselves? It's all over their documents. 
that had been found in those caves. They called themselves the sons of light. I guess a city set on a hill can be hidden. It can be hidden in caves on the Northwest Dead Sea coast. But you know what? That's a common move that people of God have often made. Well, it's so dark, we'll just start our own whatever. That's fine, maybe for a time. Jesus went away for a bit to Caesarea Philippi to get away. I get that. But if your whole interpretation of what it means to be faithful is to get out away from, then haven't you done exactly what he's condemning here? This sect physically withdrew, and I wonder sometimes if we're culturally in a kind of withdrawal. You can't very well be salt or light to something you're not present with. And this is not how the light of the world himself, Jesus, as John 1 refers to him, responded to this world with all of its sinners. In Luke 15, the reason, the reason he gives the parable of the lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost or prodigal son, is because the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling about him. These are the religious people. What are they grumbling about? Well, he receives sinners and eats with them. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, they're sitting down to eat, which was tantamount to having fellowship with someone in the ancient world. And so the religiously pure, as they styled themselves, said that's not appropriate. And that's why he gives us this parable about this three-part parable about why God actually loves lost people and lost things. That's what he came for. So this isn't the attack of the light of the world. He doesn't go away from the darkness. He comes into the darkness. And as with Christ, so with Christians. What does Matthew 5, um, 14 say? You are the light of the world. His disciples are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bowl, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, just as I came into the darkness, went into the food to make it more palatable, to keep it from ruined, I want you to do the same thing. You're going to shine your light before others, in their presence. All right? And as in the time of Jesus, maybe this kind of insular notion that we're to insulate ourselves from the darkness... Maybe just like then, it's coming today from our influential religious leaders. Maybe they're the same, that was, they were the problem in Jesus' day. Maybe we have some of that too. If you want to be faithful, you need to pull away. Maybe it's coming from our politicians. In whose interest, let's be clear, it is to overdraw and underscore with 5,000 dark, bold lines the us versus them way of looking at the world. You know, the us and the them are a lot closer than either one of them wants to admit. But there's a lot of people in whose interests get you thinking that way. There's the good guys and the bad guys. The good news channel and the bad news channel. The good party and the bad party. The good part of the world, the bad part of the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the main thing the Bible says. We have met the enemy. A cartoon from the 1950s set. And the enemy is us. We have to decide where, where our loyalties lie, to the, the preachers or the politicians who are telling us, oh, you're in the good group, you get away from the bad people, or whether they lie with Jesus, who came into the world. 
R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that I've looked at over the past couple of weeks, says this about this paragraph. It is this visible distinctiveness which arouses the hostility of others. The fact that we are light, that we are different, that alone brings some hostility. But on the other hand, it is only those who are involved with other people who will be seen to be different. And so attract persecution. Salt is of no use as long as it stays in the salt cellar. Light is of no use under a bowl. It is the town conspicuously sighted on a hill which people notice. And the outcome of distinctive discipleship is intended to be that other people will notice. And though they may respond with cynicism and persecution, ultimately the light will have its effect and they will recognize and acknowledge the goodness of the God who is its source. Disciples, therefore, you and I, must be both distinctive and involved. You can't be involved and lose your distinction. You're selling out. But you also can't be distinctive and uninvolved. Or you've just gone out somewhere else. And who cares? You're not relevant. Neither the indistinguishably assimilated nor the inaccessible hermit will fulfill the mandate of these challenging verses. Amen to that. I don't know any other way to read that. So disconnecting from the world, while perhaps tempting, isn't faithfulness, actually. It's an abdication of our responsibility to the world as salt and as its light. But if disengagement from those still in darkness is a kind of unfaithfulness to Jesus' charge, so is dismissing them with disdain. So we can leave them, but we also might just look down on them. I don't even like saying them. But we're people who found some light, and we want to share the light. That's all I mean. People who haven't, don't know the light of the world yet. They're still in darkness. How do we respond? Are we willing to look at ourselves and see that our outreach is very much about introspection? Well, probably not if we're busy all the time looking down on people that we think are the, the bad guys. One of the main tactics that human beings use, is this not the case? Don't you know this in your own heart? One of the main tactics, tactics that you and I use to avoid introspection is to focus the lens of criticism on other people. Because if we don't focus in on ourselves, we're focusing on somebody else, we don't have to do the hard work of thinking about things that make us feel bad about ourselves. So we focus on the flaws of others. If I can cast light on the failure of the other, I don't have to look at my own. I mean, that's, I don't know, there's some psycho psychological name for it or, you know, in, in the realm of psychology and psychi uh, psych uh, psychiatry, but all of us teach our kids that. You know, the little, we have little adages. You point your finger at somebody, you've got three pointing back at you, or however many, three, yeah. Thumb's kind of not relevant to that, don't I? Um, in this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this spirit over in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The same speech later on, he talks about judging. What he's really talking about here, though, is a hypocritical condemnation. Not that you should, shouldn't sometimes call out things that are sin. The whole Bible tells us to do that. That's part of what mission is. We're going to put folks and say, hey, there's another way of living. How about the kingdom of Christ? It has a code of conduct, and it's really healthy. And you're going to like it. It's going to bring you the joy Corey was talking about earlier. But in Matthew 7, just a little bit later in this very speech, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. 
for with the judgment you pronounce, with that judgment, he says, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it's going to be measured out to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't address the speck in somebody else's eye. He's just saying it's pretty, saying it's pretty ironic when you've got you know, a piece of this tree that John and others cut down yesterday. Um, I was waiting on the call, man. I think he spared me. We had three grandkids. We were cutting down other kinds of trees. Um, it's a few branches, John said, yeah, right. Things like, looks like 150 years old or something. Um, good work. I appreciate everybody doing that. And Michael getting us solid up there with the, the, the moisture and everything. But think about one of those big logs those guys dealt with yesterday. And sticking out of your eye while you're working on just a speck in somebody else's, you know, right there under your eyelash. Let me get it. That's the, that ludicrous image is how we should think about ourselves. If every time we start to think about our own problems... It's eclipsed, the process is eclipsed by focus on other people's problems. So we can look down on other people. We can hold them in disdain. And of course, focusing on the other person's sin problems doesn't mean we don't have our own. It's not really related. They could be horrible sinners and we could be horrible sinners too. Um, but it most certainly can blind us to our sin and derail um, our discipleship, our progress toward imitating the light of Jesus. Let's look at something else Jesus said over in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14, the so-called parable of um, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the Pharisee and um, the publican. I want you to notice verse 9. I should have highlighted it, especially. He also told this parable. So a lot of times we get a reason for the parable. Here's one. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. I think that's the whole ball of wax right there. If, you try, if you're self-righteous, if you think you really don't have that big of a problem, it's just some theoretical, oh, we all sin. But you're really not willing to do the hard introspection. You can kind of brush off the whole thing, oh, of course I'm not perfect. You're not really going to look at yourself. In fact, that's often used as a way to get around doing that. You think you've covered that base with a little check. No, like really looking at yourself on an ongoing basis. Letting the word of God argue with you. Challenge your preconceived notions. Work on your bad habits. Repentance is hard. It hurts. When you're not willing to do that, often you'll find that you're, another, you're a person who treats other people with contempt. And if you're a person who treats other people with contempt, you're probably self-righteous. It's hard to treat somebody else with contempt if I really empathize with them in the same struggles. So the larger my sense of my own sin, the less likely I am to heap contempt on the other person. The more I heap contempt, the more readily and easily I heap contempt on another person, the less I've grasped my own sin. That's why those, those move in opposite directions here. Or self-righteous moves in the same direction with contempt for others. And he gives this parable, which is really kind of funny. Two men went up into the temple to pray, verse 10. Praying. If I were to ask people on the street, name three religious activities. Wouldn't prayer probably be like number one or two? Definitely be in the list. 
People in all religions pray. So that's what's going on. Religion is happening right here. Quote, unquote. But I want you to notice what most, most, uh, much religion really is when you boil it down. A lot of religion, all it really is, is getting an identity by negation. I am, what are you? I am not those people. But what are you? Well, I'm not them. No, I'm not asking you what you are. I think a lot of us can't even articulate that. We're just not the denominations, or we're not the liberals, or we're not the something. What are you? Look at this. Look at the prayer. This is supposed to be piety? Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, to do a religious act, ostensibly a devotional act. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. That's his prayer. A whole lot of religion is basically that. Preachers telling you, leaders telling you, here's the bad people. Your identity is you're not them. What are you, though? You may be a lot more like them than you'd care to admit. And accepting that we have a sin problem is one of the, 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 the fundamental things that we acknowledge when we accept the gospel. When you accept the gospel, you're accepting God's view of you. You're looking at your life now in a new way, through the lens of what happened at Calvary. And it says a couple of things about you. The first thing it says about you that you are tacitly accepting is that I'm a person whose sins were so bad that it took the death of a perfect son of God to address them. Our sins are way worse than we think. And so a Christian, but the second thing it says is, but God loved me so much that he, he completely solved that problem by offering a son of mine. And so I'm liberated from that thing which was more awful than I could have ever imagined. Nobody should be more open to the fact that, that they are a sinner than a Christian. We're, we're not the people who go, oh, no, 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 don't say anything's wrong with us. We're the first to say something's wrong. Lots of stuff's wrong with us. We're not relying on us, we're relying on him. We're not relying on our record and our performance, we're relying on what happened at well, the finished work at Calvary. So we should be people who are very adept at talking about our own flaws and failures. Jesus taught in the very first statement of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, contra the self-righteousness of so many of the religious folk of his day, that it was the very process of admitting our sinfulness, accepting our spiritual poverty, our destitution before God, that that's step one coming to the kingdom. Look what he says. This is how the Sermon on the Mount starts. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying what? I choose you because you are holy. I've selected you because you've obeyed me. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who can acknowledge that their life is a wreck. Not rich in spirit, impoverished. You're a pauper in all the things that matter. You've got nothing. What did the tax collector, what was his prayer? Be thou merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man, not the religious guy, went down to his house justified. Thirdly, finally this morning, 
how do we relate to people who haven't found the light of the world yet, who don't know Jesus, who are still in the darkness that our light is supposed to penetrate, that the salt is supposed to be making more palatable and preserving from ruin? Well, we might be people who just disconnect. We might be people who hold them in disdain. Or maybe we go a step further and just demonize them. We lash out at them. They're, act, they're the enemy that we actively have to attack. And that's our third way around introspection. And the third reality. It's a live option out there. It's on the airwaves. It's being preached in pulpits. It travels around in our heart, if truth be told. That we're going to have to deal with if we're going to be people who look to ourselves to make sure our salt hasn't lost its saltness. And this is the temptation to respond to the meanness of the world against us in the same way, to respond in kind. Remember, again, the whole context of Jesus' charge to be salt, to be the light of the world, is the abuse that they're going to receive for being different. You're the salt of the world, you're the light of the world. What context, what's he just said? People are going to be reviling you and persecuting you and uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So, take up arms against them and annihilate them. It's not what he says. Drop verbal bombs on social media behind the cover of anonymity. That's brave. It's not only wimpy and not very honorable, it's also the opposite of this. He doesn't say wage culture war. He says be light, be salt. Jesus knew who the enemy was. And you knew who the victims of the enemy were. And the victims were the sinners. He loved them. He didn't love their sin. And I think sometimes we, we have trouble with that. We're not to demonize the people who are yet in darkness. But again, if I can be per persuaded to lash out at my enemies, if we can be persuaded to lash out our enemies, we won't feel the need to look inside at ourselves, right? We won't need to honestly assess whether my behavior looks any more like light or salt than that person's because I'm busy getting the bad guys. It's kind of a black hat, white hat world. But our king, Jesus, did not teach us to lash out at them, but to love them. In the same sermon, a few verses later, chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, 43 through 44, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We still hear it said. <laughs> That's as old as the hills. And it's the most unregenerate, humanist, earthly logic you could ever come up with. Don't you think God sometimes looks down and goes, my goodness, please get some new material. Y'all doing the same thing over and over. Jesus says, but I say to you, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And of course, focusing on other persons, on, a, um, on someone's persecution is going to, you know, it's going to tempt me 
to respond like the world does, but Jesus reminds us by his example and by his teaching that selfless love is actually the way to go. And let me just, let me say something else here, another kind of history point, if you'll indulge me. I want to put persecution, you know, those who persecute you, I want to put that in, in kind of historical context here, the persecution of Christians at least. And I'm not an expert on this, but um, I, I do feel really confident in saying this, that Christians in America throughout American history, from the you know, colonial period, early 17th century up through now, so some four centuries of time, um, Christians in America are hardly in a bad position. And they really never have been. Now you can say, oh, huh, I can point you, so I can cherry pick the historical record. Somebody was mean to a Christian. Well, that happens everywhere. I'm talking about macro, 30,000 foot level, comparing it to all the other ways Christians have been treated throughout history. And even today, elsewhere. We don't have it bad. We've got, actually, we're probably in the 98th percentile in terms of acceptance of Christianity morally in the public square. I know you're not getting that on the news. But ask, ask somebody who actually studies this stuff, you know, not me, experts who study history of persecution and, and ask them how American Christians fare versus people elsewhere in the world who've tried to be Christians. I sometimes think we've confused merely being made to feel uncomfortable or just having to witness an evil development in our culture or our society with actual persecution. Like we have a birthright to never have to be uncomfortable. That's not persecution. I remember Sean making a point like this in a class a couple years ago. I think it was you. He doesn't even remember. Maybe I made that up. Um, but I, 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 there's, a, there's a book I've been reading here lately, a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Um, he co-authored it with another fellow, but he's a social psychologist who was at University of Virginia for years, and I've read after him for a while. He's, he's actually an atheist, I think, like a, uh, a Jew ethnically, but not religiously. A really good scholar and I think very moderate and balanced in a lot of the culture war issues going on. Um, so this guy isn't like an evangelical Christian. He's, he's uh, I get the impression, politically liberal and, and definitely theologically an unbeliever, an unbeliever. But he's kind of got some, uh, you can't put him in a box. He sounds libertarian half the time and sometimes he sounds uh, like a, a Democrat. I, I don't know what he is, honestly. That probably makes him a good writer. <laughs> But he, 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 in this book, Coddling of the American Mind, which came out last year, he argues that over the last few years in America, last 10 years or so, there's, there's this growing view on college campuses, but it's now out in the general society, like a lot of things do. They go from college campuses, and then a few years later, they're out just on the street. And this view is that we have a right, that American people, we think we have a right never even to be made to feel psychologically uncomfortable. It's kind of a birthright now. We, we have a right to never have any of our convictions challenged, even. So we can just cancel anyone who challenges our thinking. Let's just cancel them. That made us, I feel uncomfortable in that class. Let's so cancel that, that teacher, cancel that speaker. They're saying things that I don't agree with. Well, it's called college. That's where you do that, dude. That's, he's freaking out because he's a professor. It's like, we can't talk anymore? And this is not some conservative, conservatives are going to love him, but he would go, I don't, I'm not one of you. He's just saying, that's too far. 
You can't do that if you're going to have conversations about things. So that's one of his points. But he, he also notices something, some concept creep, he calls it, with things like trauma and triggers and a lot of the, the language um, that in the 70s and 80s was used for things like rape and battery. Um, and, and there's been some concept creep so that the concepts, or the words are still being used, but they don't any longer... They're not any longer limited to threats to life and limb. They're now applied to anything that pushes me out of my comfort zone. I'm traumatized. Must be canceled. That view's different than what I grew up with in my coddled home. Cancel it or I'm leaving. And so he's calling out like administrations and just now the general public because that's out there everywhere. Let me say this. He doesn't say this, I'm going to say it. Many evangelical Christians would probably be among the first people to stand up and decry, cancel culture. Right? But they often are the very people who have their own persecution complexes and lose their minds when they hear someone in what is a very earthly kingdom called America. This is a kingdom of the earth. This isn't the kingdom of heaven. I love it, but I imagine Romans love the Roman Empire. French people love France. Russians love Russia. If they have half a clue what's going on. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? This isn't, this isn't heaven. We're citizens. We're, our, our commonwealth is in heaven. This is just one of many nations that exists. Has a lot of blessings. My favorite country ever. Doesn't matter, but you'd expect me to say that. I'm a citizen here. I was reared here. I mean, we have collard greens and stuff, you know? Other people don't have that, I think. Um, if you know that they do, don't tell me that. That will blow my world. But think about the irony of saying no one is allowed to do anything in a pluralistic country with all kinds of evil going on, like any other country. I'm talking about America. Without me as, an, as a Christian, as a believer, you know, throwing a fit as if I'm never supposed to even have a, a view or a value challenged out in the public square. I mean, Jesus came into the world in the fullness of times. You don't think the Roman Caesars practiced some things that were off-putting to Jesus? So there's a little bit of irony and hypocrisy perhaps in that. And for Christians in the first century, as for Christians in other parts of the world today, persecution, that word, the P word, we need to reserve that for persecution. It meant real threat to life and limb. For example, 2 Corinthians 11, the kind of part, uh, hardship that Paul endured, his list includes imprisonments, multiple imprisonments. How many have been jailed for preaching the gospel or talking about Jesus at work? Never heard of a person in America being jailed for that, personally. And if so, you, you trot out two or three people, you're going to be like in point oh 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 one percent land. Evangelicals have been often in America have been the, the largest political lobby. There are now, numerically. 35-40%. That's not persecution. Okay? Paul says he was imprisoned he, he was beaten he was flogged three times he was stoned and left for dead 
He suffered hunger and exposure. He said, I had enemies here and enemies there. and enemy. He was shipwrecked and floating on junk in the sea. That's persecution. And this kind of suffering is the context for Peter's first epistle. In 1 Peter 4, I've lost my, uh, there we go. 1 Peter 4, beloved, notice this. We would do well to hear this. Do not be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't act like it's some abnormality or anomaly when a fiery trial comes upon you to test you. That's normal. As though something strange were happening to you. I think a whole lot of Americans need to hear that. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We need to not be sucked up into what talking heads are telling us. They're not the best theologians. Jesus is. Peter is. These are Holy Spirit-inspired writings. And he says, don't think it's strange. And I remember that Peter himself, who had heard the Sermon on the Mount, the words that, that Stephen Beard read for us earlier, Peter heard them in person, right? You're going to be salt. You're going to be light. Even when people are persecuting you. You're going to be like me, the light of the world. You're going to respond to that darkness the same way I did. You're going to be present in it, and you're going to keep doing the right thing. And you're not going to waver from your convictions, but you're also not going to be turned into one of them with a cross decoration or a bumper sticker. Because if it walks like a duck, it's a duck. Whether you put the word Christian on it or not. Whatever flag it's waving, it's still a duck. You're not going to become one of them. You're going to be light. And light's different from darkness. But how had Peter responded when Jesus was apprehended and arrested that night? He had denied that he even knew him. Emphasizing with his curse words. And Jesus had told him already, Satan's going to sift you like wheat, but you're going to turn again. You're going to be forgiven, and you're going to be a, a, a vessel, a vector of forgiveness and of the way of Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that many ways parallels what Peter heard in the sermon about salt and light. He says that we may proclaim as Christians the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're that royal priesthood that Exodus 19. And then he says this, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people who don't belong here, you're not ultimately American or Russian or Roman or whatever, you're Christian in America or Rome or Russia. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. When you go to the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 that are contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, what do you notice about the list? They're almost all either sexual sins. What's the other category? Pardon? Yeah, like strife, anger, rivalry, fighting all the time, conflict. They're almost all one or the other. That's a passion of the flesh if there ever was one. And we give ourselves too much of a pass on that one. You ever heard of a church withdrawing from somebody because they were angry? He's just angry all the time. It never changes. We're going to withdraw from him. No, but sexual sins. Whew. Well, they're both in there because they're both passions of the flesh. He says, instead, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Out there in the nations so that they can see your good deeds. Again, echoing what Jesus said and glorify God 
on the day of his visitation. So introspection and condemnation of others, they move in opposite directions. We need to look inside ourselves continually because one of the best ways to go, quote unquote, to be sent is to repent. And we can't do that if we're not looking at ourselves. Thank you for your attention today. Um, this is hard stuff for me too, I assure you, but it's something that we have to do if we're going to be people who are modeling the way of Jesus to a dark world. Let's do so with humility and conviction. If you need anything at all, uh, let us know by coming to the center uh, chairs as together we stand and sing.